There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 188. And today on the show, we're joined by Whitetail Properties land specialist and renowned deer hunter, Gabe Adair. And we're chatting with him about how he killed his biggest buck ever this year and his tactics for late season hunting. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we've got a great show for you as we're going to be joined here shortly by Gabe Adair. And Gabe is a land specialist for Whitetail Properties. And he's been a, he's been a longtime member of that team if you follow their TV show or just the Whitetail Properties, you know, real estate and all that kind of stuff. You, you've likely seen his name around a lot. Um, because on top of all that, he's just one of the most consistent and renowned big buck killers out there in the country. So um, coming up here shortly, we're going to chat with him a bit about his 2017 season so far, uh, how he killed his biggest buck to date. And uh, spoiler alert, it is a 200 plus inch buck and it's like 200 and a lot plus. So uh, we're going to dive into that and spend a lot of time talking about his tactics and philosophies for hunting the late season. So we're going to talk about what's coming up here in the coming weeks, but uh, that's our agenda. But before we do that, uh, I'm very pleased to say that we are back this week with our pregame show <laughs> featuring my good buddy, the nine-fingered, big-bearded, hammer-dropping Dan Johnson. <laughs> How are you, man? Uh, I'm good, but you set me up for failure. Every time you throw one of those intros out, it's like whenever <laughs> whenever people see a picture of me, they just look at me and like, oh, that guy looks like a huge pussy. <laughs> He's big all right. <laughs> uh, it's been too long since we got to chat together here. I know, man. Just crazy. Um, crazy schedules. Yeah. Nuts lately. I apologize. I, and it's not really like just you've been doing – on a crazy schedule and I've been on a crazy schedule. It's just this time of year, man. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge to line everything up between 
us and guests and hunting and other things. And, um, man, I don't know about, well, I, I think I know, um, but I've been on a little break from hunting just until today. I finally hunted for the first time in 10 days. Um, but how about you? Have you been in the woods? I think, I think you have been in the woods since we talked last. Yeah, man. Um, what was it last Sunday or the Sunday before last would have been, yeah, it would have been two Sundays ago. Good. Uh, you know, Ben Harshine from Hunterra maps, man. He's a oh, yeah. good friend. He's a good friend of mine. And he invited me out to his, uh, farm and we've shared a tree together and we both had our bows with us and we were going to try to double up on, uh, on some does. And he gave me, uh, the first shot and long story short, I, uh, I laid a doe down that night and, uh, it was just, I tell you what, there's something about that scenario where you're sharing a tree with a friend and it's like, all we did was laugh, right? I mean, that's <laughs> literally all we did and just cut jokes. And, you know, finally we saw some deer and these deer worked their way down and, uh, I ended up taking one of them and he was at full draw at one of them and, and, uh, it was kind of behind a limb and he couldn't, he couldn't make the shot cause he didn't want to, you know, push the shot. And, uh, it was just fun. And I think that's something that, you know, we, it's a different kind of fun when you're not focused on, you know, chasing a, a, a buck and, uh, it just, I don't know, it just kind of re reinvigorates the soul. If that makes sense. Oh, it definitely does. I, I love as much as I like chasing, you know, big mature bucks. One yeah. of my favorite parts of the hunting season every year is either I filled my buck tags or I've kind of said, all right, it's just time to fill the freezer. Whenever I change my goal from trying to kill a buck to it's time to kill a doe, like those doe hunts are just so much fun. Um, cause you, you it's, it's a target, it's going to be a target rich environment, you know? Right. Um, absolutely. And then to your point, I a hundred percent agree when it comes to hunting with a buddy. Yeah. Um, that's, that's always a lot of fun. I haven't got to do that this season. Um, just cause of the craziness of what I've been up to lately. But, uh, man, I'm glad it went well. It's got deer on the ground. Right now. It wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't talk about my kids for a second. Um, <laughs> and I just have to tell this story because it made me laugh and kind of cry at the same time. And I'll tell you why it made ha me cry. Happy, happy tears or sad tears? Well, sad tears, but I'll, let me explain. You'll, you'll get it. <laughs> okay. So the other day, I, and it was, what was it? Uh, it was actually Tuesday because instead of recording our podcast at the regular time, I was outside playing with my daughter. And I said, Ava, how was preschool today? And, you know, just like a typical kid, she's like, oh, it was okay. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what did you learn? And she walks over to me and she punches me right in the balls. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Just straight up, straight punch right in the nards. And, uh, oh my and I was just like, why did you do that? Well, because I like preschool, dad. And I'm just like, what are you learning at preschool? Did you have an explanation? No, Anymore? because she's four and kids that are that age don't have explanations for the actions that they do. I guess so. So, so yeah. how, do you, how do you handle that? What's the, what's the teaching moment post uh, nut punch from your daughter? Right. Um, baby... Well, like I wanted to throw her in timeout. Honestly, I wanted to spank her. Yeah. But 
I just grabbed her by her shoulder and I said, why did you do that? And she looked at me with these big, beautiful eyes and she's like, I like preschool, dad. I, and I think it was because we were kind of roughhousing a little uh-huh. bit, you know, we were chasing each other in the yard and, uh, you know, tapping each other and, and, uh, I don't know, but it was kind of funny. And then, uh, later that night, my, uh, son drank an entire squeeze bottle of concentrate, <laughs> uh, juice mix, oh. you know, those little squeeze bottles. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. He, you should have seen him. I walked. What did his face look like? Oh, it looked like he had a melted popsicle all over his face. <laughs> and then uh, I didn't have to change the the next diaper, but because he's still in diapers. But uh, it was red. Oh, I bet. Ugh. So Dude. that's kind of what I've been doing now that uh, the bow season's over for me. That's what I do when I tag out. Kids. Wow. <laughs> but dude, it sounds like you had a. Uh, like a quick trip across uh, North America this week? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, since we last chatted, we well, we have. Uh, you probably didn't hear our podcast that I did with Furter. Didn't you? I'm sure you didn't because you got better things to do than listen to me talk. Um, well, I listened to a little bit of it. Okay, well, we were giving you some crap. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So Furter was on, and I told him about my latest exploits with Holyfield. Um. But uh, long story short, since you and me chatted last, yeah. I did have a handful more encounters with him, um, hunted up till opening day of gun season in Michigan, and yep. then after that, you know, went up north for a few days, and then since the 19th of November, I've stopped hunting, and um, just had to get back to spending some time with my wife and family, and doing some things for Thanksgiving with my family and her family, and just, right. you know... Um, Taking care stuff. of, yeah, important real-world responsibilities. Yep. Um, so did all that. But then, yeah, just a couple days ago, I flew out to Seattle, Washington um, to do some stuff uh, with Steve Ranella and those guys. Um, did a podcast, and we went squid jigging, which oh, was wow. pretty cool. Yeah. So, so what does squid jigging entail? Yeah, so basically it entails... Um, Going to a pier in downtown Seattle and standing on the edge of that pier uh, with a fishing rod and a jig on the end of it. Basically, imagine like um, it almost looks like a bobber. Like imagine like those plastic bobbers, um, like the long, the long bobbers. Um, But instead of that being a bobber, it's a weighted jig with a bunch of hooks all along the bottom of it, like. have you ever seen those hummingbird feeders that are yep. kind of like sil- uh, that get like, kind of like a teardrop shape, and then there's that tray on the bottom? Yep. Imagine that shape. That's the shape of the lure, but instead of that tray on the bottom, those are all hooks stick- sticking up. Okay. Um, and then you just drop your line over down the pier, and we you shine this huge light down to the water, which I guess attracts these squid. And then you drop this jig down to the bottom, and then you just jig it up and down. You know, bob it up and down, and let it set, then up and down, and these squid attack it. And you, that is awesome. You bring it right on in. So uh, there was there was well, there's four or five. I guess there was four of us for a period, and then a fifth joined and then steve's son was there and we caught probably i don't know maybe a hundred squid or somewhere in that ballpark um wow so it's pretty cool it was really cool i'll tell you um, what the puget sound up there is 
absolutely gorgeous country. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, that, that Pacific Northwest area is yeah. super cool. I, you know, I didn't have very much time. I wish I could have spent some more time out there enjoying the, the mountains and the, the, uh, the sound and all that, but it was, it was nice to get a really quick little trip in there and brought home a bunch of squids. So calamari is so on the menu. You got a, you got a recipe? Uh, you know, I haven't picked out a recipe yet. I just was, you know, they were telling me it could be pretty good grilled or just fried up, you know, calamari style. So I think awesome. we'll be, we'll be trying a couple different things. I got, I brought quite a lot home. So, um, we're just going to try some different things and see how it goes. So yeah, man, that was like a fun. it was a good quick trip. It was it was there for yeah, I flew flew in there one day and flew home the next day, um, and then I got back from that last night, and then this morning I drove up to or down to Ohio, um, and I'm gonna hunt here for three or four days. The last few days of their firearm season here. Oh, cool! So uh, anything tonight? Man, anything tonight? I did not. Um, I didn't get much of a hunt in though. Uh, yeah. I got a late start, a little bit of a late start, maybe like a half hour late start this morning. And then, um, our, our podcast guest that I recorded that interview earlier today, that kind of had some timing issues with that. So I got a later start on that than was hoping. So I arrived at the property like a half hour to 45 minutes later than I wanted to. And then I, I was getting ready and I was all set about ready to head out. And then the landowner showed up. Um, so I stopped to, to chit chat with the landowner for a couple minutes and that went a little longer than I was hoping. So already I'm like, Oh geez, I am not going to get much time or nearly as much time as I wanted. And then we, we say goodbye and I'm about to walk, you know, out of the gate and into the cornfield. And then I hear the, the landowner start like kind of hollering, like something, something bad has happened. Yeah. And I'm like, I could just keep walking and go and go hunt, but, <laughs> but no, I had to I had to turn around and see what was going on. So I went back, and uh, long story short, he had locked his keys in his vehicle. Oh, um, and and this is a you know, an older gentleman, um, so I just knew he was gonna need some help. Um, so ended up calling and finding uh, a tow truck company in the area that could come and um and get the keys out and i called around different people that might be able to help us find some spare keys around the house but no one knew where one was and he didn't know and so you ended up calling a tow truck company and then waited with him for like 45 minutes until they got there to help him out um so so the result of that was that uh, instead of having like a three-hour hunt or four-hour hunt that i thought i was gonna have instead i had by the time all this was done i had like 45 minutes till dark so I just snuck out to the edge of the cornfield and sat in the ground in some brush just to see if I could see anything. And, uh, I did not see anything. So disappointing, uh, disappointing night, but I was all right. Had to, uh, you know, had to help out. I, I certainly appreciate this landowner allowing me to hunt there. So at least I could do yeah. was was help out someone, uh, that needed a hand and, um, hopefully better things to come in the next three days. Did you, uh, at least check trail cameras while you were out there? Well, I was planning on it, but because of the fact I wasn't able to get into the core of the property like I planned on, um, yeah. I just was able to pull one camera that was you know easily accessible. So got one card out, and there's three more cards that I'm going to be able to check tomorrow. So, here's a question: Yeah, what happened to that property? <sighs> because because 
what was it? I don't know. Last year may not have been as good, but the previous years there was just it was loaded with giants. Yeah, man, it, it has been going downhill. Um, I th- my if I had to put a finger on it, my best guess is that it's been increased pressure. Um, I think one thing for sure is that one of our neighbors, the first three years, nobody hunted that property. Nobody right. was allowed to hunt it, and now this year and last year, it, it got leased. So there are people hunting our neighbor now that I think in the past that served as a sanctuary and there was a lot of deer in and around that area that that were coming onto our farm and we were taking advantage of that. Now that's not happening. Um, And then also I saw maybe there's more pressure on the other side because today when I was getting ready, I saw two hunters heading into the other neighbor and I've never seen hunters there ever before either. Um, So... If I had to guess, that's what I would say. I just think there's more people hunting around, pushing in on all the sides of it. Um, we're just not getting the bucks like we were getting on camera in the past. We're not. It never was a property that I saw a lot of deer. It was always pretty low deer numbers, but you knew that they're, you know, if you put in enough time and hunted it smart, if you the few deer you saw, a really good buck could be in that group. Um, now you know Josh was, you know, we we've seen one nice buck. You know, I passed yep. I passed on him twice, and then Josh killed him. Um, so that was awesome, but, uh, hopefully there's at least one more that, uh, that will show up. I just don't know. I don't know. There's, you know, there's a chance there's last time when I was down here, you know, that trip when Josh killed his, uh, that was like November 9th or 10th that he killed. He, he killed his yep. buck the day after you and me record that podcast together. Yep. Yep. Um, so when we checked cameras on that trip, there's this one buck that um, there's one like homebody buck that has been showing up in daylight, and and the one like mature buck that's been consistently on camera. And when I say consistent, it's not like he's there every day, but you know, a couple times a week or something, and some in daylight. Um, and he's a he's a really nice buck. I mean, he's probably a definitely a five year old, big body, big framed, probably 150 ish something, uh, nine pointer. I think he is. Uh, maybe no, maybe he's a ten pointer, um, but really cool deer that we've had on the property for two years now. Um, so my hopes, I'm kind of banking on and hoping that he is, that he's still around. And if he is, you know, maybe we'll get a crack at him over this next month. So I'm gonna hunt him here these next few days during gun season, and then go home and focus on Holyfield uh, with a big cold front that's coming through. And then, um, you know, as my schedule dictates, try to get back out here again if uh, if I can't get it done on this trip. So, right. man, that's that's the latest. Holyfield showing up on camera in the past couple of days? No, but uh, I haven't checked anything. My cell cameras gotcha. don't work. None, none of my cell cameras work anymore. It's a very frustrating situation. Um, no. So I have two cell cameras that are just sitting out there not doing anything for me. Um so that sucks. Yeah. So I last time I checked cameras in person was uh like November twentieth or something like that. Um so I haven't been out in like ten days. So when I get home from Ohio, I'll be checking those out and hopefully we'll get an answer on Holyfield. Um the one piece of good news I do have is that I did do a drive by uh actually this morning, just before I left for Ohio, and I saw the really nice three-year-old that I've been wanting to survive this year to make it to next year, that buck I'm calling Survivor. So he is alive and well as of this morning, and today is the last day of gun season in Michigan. So if he made it through tonight, he made it through the worst of it. Awesome. So it would be really nice to know there's a four-year-old that 
hopefully can make it to next year or, or that there could potentially be a four-year-old for next year. So wow. fingers crossed. Oh yeah. So that's my that's story. Cool, man. Yeah. I don't know what my, my late season plan is going to be. I, I think they're, I think I'm going to be able to get out a handful of times. Nice. Um, I don't have any trail cameras out, so it's just going to be, you know, cause I've had a problem with theft lately out on, on the main farm, but, um, you know, and also on my buddy's farm, but these pictures were during the rut. There are some good bucks running around there. Nobody hunts his little piece, so hopefully it turns into a sanctuary during gun season. Um, and then the neighbor across the creek, he has standing food plots and then doesn't hunt the late season. So hopefully uh, on my buddy's farm, I might be able to run into something. And then on uh, my main farm, if I do go down and hunt, it's just going to be a wing it you know, hopefully there's some snow. I can find some tracks or something to, to set up on, but you know, late season is late season. It can be a real struggle or it can be awesome if you, uh, find the food. Yeah. To, to, uh, something you mentioned there, I sure hope we get some snow and some good late season yeah. weather. Cause, cause right yeah. now at least it's not real, it's not real promising. It's been like forties and fifties and yeah, not what you want. So, right. Absolutely. But next Absolutely. next week Wednesday we've got like a big twenty degree temperature drop in Michigan. So yeah, hoping to take advantage of that. I don't think it rained but one time the entire month of November here in Iowa. Really? So it's pretty it's pretty dry out there right now. Oh man, it was the exact opposite of that where I was. I felt like every single day I was hunting it was raining. <laughs> yeah, it's been brutal. But is uh is North Dakota a scratch then? For this Man, year? It's, it's looking like it. Yeah. Um, the only way that could change is if, like, if I kill Holyfield next week, um, then there's still a small chance I could try to mount a late season trip to North Dakota. But it's it's increasingly looking like that's a scratch, which is which is disappointing. But um, you know, I put all my eggs in the basket of Holyfield, and it it uh, it just limited things. And uh, hey. That's the risk you take when you hunt one deer, man. Yeah, it is. And um we'll see if it uh if I can make it all worth it or or if not, I certainly learned something. That's right. So, well, I think uh I think this is a good spot to to wrap things up. Um let's plan on talking again next week, Mr. Johnson, and um I'll have some updates from my hunts. And um maybe we should go uh get Gabe Dare on here with us. But first, let's take a quick second to thank our partners at Sitka Gear. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Jake Terry, who tells us about a Nebraska public land hunt where his turkey was well-earned. Uh, so this spring, I headed to Nebraska uh, to go out to western Nebraska to hunt some public land, um, kind of run-and-gun style hunting. Um, I got there, and it wasn't near as easy as I thought. I had to, you know, I was walking up to five miles a day trying to find birds um on the fourth day and was going to be one of the final days of my hunt had a rainy morning but had finally found some birds the night before um had to sit a couple hours in the rain but once the rain cleared um was able to call in a couple of long beards um from the ground no blind um with archery equipment um shot a bird at 25 yards um ended up being a, a really nice bird and kind of the the end to a um, a long drawn out hunt, uh, 
that I, I think I probably lost 10 pounds that week uh, or the, in those four days because I walked so many miles. But great hunt. On Jake's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's subalpine pattern. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. All right, with us on the line now is Gabe Adair. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Yeah, appreciate you having me. Yeah, I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. We've chatted with a number of other guys from the Whitetail Properties team, um, you know, good buddies with Alex Gilstrom and a number of other folks within the organization, but I, I've just always wanted to get to pick your brain because you just seem to be one of the most consistent serious big buck killers um in the whole crew so so i'm glad we can finally do this gabe and i guess to to kind of get things started i briefly introduced you uh before we jumped on here but you've been a long term a long time member of the whitetail properties team both from the real estate side and the tv show side um, but can you tell us a little bit from your own perspective uh, about what it is you do and what this experience has been like for you um, yeah, so I've got, I'm a sales agent for them. Um, simple as that. I work in South Central Iowa. I'm blessed to have grown up there, which I think goes hand in hand with the real estate and the hunting. You know, I grew up in this type of hunting environment my whole life. Um, so when it turned into more of a business, you know, it's already something I'd lived. So, um, very fortunate for that. Um, but I've got, like I said, um, I share a territory with Derek Grimsrud. We work South Central Iowa, um, you know, and, and, about it been with them since day one kind of helped them build it up knew about it when it was the idea on a napkin so to speak well it's got to be kind of amazing for you to see what it has become now isn't it i mean from going to napkin stage to uh you know such a leader in the space now yeah no it's awesome it's grown really fast we've got tons of you know really good guys on the team um and i think it's balanced you know we've got the right owners and the right people in the right places um, you know, we're not all exactly the same and it seems like, you know, some guys strengths, you know, pick up for other guys weaknesses, so to speak. And so I think it's just a great balance. Got a really smart business crew. Um, yeah, it's blown up. It's went really fast. And when I got in real estate, I'm not surprised by it. You know, I've been self-employed my whole life. I got out of high school and started a construction business and did that and kind of started guiding and, you know, through my twenties and, you know, love the outdoors and, you know, it kind of worked out because I had a bunch of guys working for me and I could leave in the fall and the winter and kind of do what I love to do as a, a side job, so to speak. And then, and then the whole, you know, the whole real estate ball started rolling and I went and got my license before we were even a company and kind of got my feet wet, so to speak. Um, you know, did a little bit of work, kind of getting, getting my toe into the water and, uh, and it just took off, you know, and it, really quickly I knew that, you know, with the team we had and what we were doing was, you know, I knew this guy was the limit. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, I don't know the details of, it, but I believe you own some. You do own some deer hunting ground of your own, and we get a lot of questions about how to get started with that. You know, how can I get my first property, especially for guys that maybe don't have a ton of expendable income, but they want to start somewhere. I don't want to spend our whole time talking about this, but do you have any quick tips off the get go for people that want to explore that option someday to to become a property owner? Yeah, it's it's like anything, you know, the the big one's just that down payment that first year, you know. So you gotta be able to, you know, save up some cash. You gotta get yourself in the position, but you know, at the same time start small. You know, start out with something, you know, um, improve it, you know, document it, do all the little 
necessity, so to speak, to, to make it a, a better hunting farm. And, you know, and for the most part where I come from, land, you know, appreciates pretty well. I mean, there's some spots in the road where she went flatline. But, you know, if you get into one, do some work, um, give it a few years, it's going to appreciate, roll that thing into a little bit bigger and so on and so forth. I've got a lot of clients that started out with 20s and 40s and own, you know, four, five, six hundred acre tracks now. So it's doable. You know, I got a lot of guys that got average jobs and don't have uh, millions in the bank, so to speak. But it's like anything, if you really want to do it, if you're passionate about it, you, you know, you work hard at it, it'll come around. Yeah, that's that's the truth. To, like you said, just about anything in life. So put your yep. mind to something, you can make it happen. So speaking Absolutely. of speaking of making things happen, um, from what I've seen from the outside, it looks like you've had a really good 2017 season. I think I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw that you killed your biggest buck to date. Is that true? Yeah, I got lucky this year, man. It was a good one. Um, it was a uh, it was a big non-typical that we passed last year as a four-year-old, and it just all lined up and it's a long story. Yeah. I mean, I'm more than happy to, to talk about it, but it lined up and, and, uh, you know, we dug in on him real hard once we got him in the area of the farm we wanted him and we expected him to get into. And we just burrowed in like a tick and, and got him killed. It took about a week, wow. you know, from, from we really got after him to kill him. It took about a week and we, we played the edges and we were smart, but you know, we dug into that farm. I didn't go anywhere else. I had zero interest in <laughs> hunting or looking at anything other than him. So <laughs> we, we dug in and, and it all worked out in together, you know, just, a an awesome hunt. Got a, got a good pre-roll, come out, fed in the food plot, bumped some does, you know, past, you know, a couple 45 yard shots, which I had no intention of taking and ended up at 30 and got a good hit on him and he didn't get out of the food plot. So it was awesome. That is awesome. Now, I, I got to tell you, I, I like long stories. So can you give us the full, detailed kind of saga of this buck, how it went from passing him last year to your plan coming into this year and how it all kind of worked out in detail? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so last year he showed up on the farm late November. Um, couldn't – I've gotten in, – in my later years, these last few years, I'm not as good about – keeping some of the pictures I probably should. I deal with such a high volume that I'm starting to, I don't know, I don't want to call it snob, but I'm getting to where sometimes I'll, I'll maybe not save some of the stuff that I should. Well, anyways, last year we went back through, you know, when he showed up, I started digging. I couldn't place him. Um, knew he wasn't a five-year-old. You know, it was one of those deer. I was 90% he was a four-year-old. Um, and uh, he showed up, I'm going to say November 18th, 20th, right in there, when we started getting pictures of him. Immediately decided to pass him, knew he was on the farm. He spent the rest of the year there. You know, he was there all fall, all winter after that. Um, never did find his sheds. I'm not a big shed guy. I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time. I got other stuff I like doing in the spring. <laughs> all this never got his shed, but he was in there all winter. We knew that. So in, in that in that part of the farm, has got some really good bedding, and it's kind of known for that. Deer do gravitate. So this year, you know, he was on the radar so you know but i was worried he was going to show up later in november like last year last year he had um a nice 10 point frame good mass good time length and he had two he had a g2 and a g3 on his uh right side that were deep fork like deep fork is in common base i mean they were big deep fork you know so he had a couple couple really big split times there and uh you know we thought this thing could really be something cool next year well this year rolls around same gig. We didn't get any pictures of him. I didn't expect to, you know, you hope to, but we're not expecting to. 
Um, we finally laid eyeballs on him, you know, doing a lot of glass, and we finally got eyeballs on him. And then once we seen him, and I'm going to say that was around November 1st, he was really close. And so now I, my wheels were turned. I'm thinking, I wonder if last year maybe, you know, he was in here earlier than I, you know, realized. Well, sure enough, we got the right wind to go check a couple cameras on the 3rd, and he'd already been in there. And so immediately, you know, once we got these new pictures, you know, we'd already seen him, so we knew what he had done, not with detail, but we knew he was big. When I was figuring he was a 200-inch animal, um, you know, right at. And so once we started getting pictures of him, it was a lot easier to really start critiquing and digging and looking, and we knew he was really good. Um, didn't realize that he was as good as what he actually is, but we knew he was 200-plus, and, and so we got after it. Um, the, first, the first night, the, the, the night we pulled the cameras and got pictures of and the next morning, my first move, um, we went and jumped in a set that was on the edge of bedding. It wasn't in the thick bedding, but it was on the edge. We had the right wind. It was easy to get into. Hadn't been in that stand all year. I got him 25 yards. So my first move, it was like, you know, move the pawn up one step, and boom. It, he was the first year we seen that morning. Wow. Um, he come, yeah, come up the creek bottom, really thick stuff. And he got to a point where he made a scrape, and I thought, okay, if he keeps coming up this creek, he's going to be right in the power alley, you know, anywhere from a 20 to 40-yard shot. If he if he turns to his right, it's not going to be good. A, he's going to be, I mean, exactly dead downwind of us in, you know, 50 yards once he makes that direction. And two, there's just no shooting lanes there. It's all hedge and nasty, and it's just thick. And so, sure enough, he goes the wrong way. And I'm a big Ozonics guy. Um, you know, we've ran him for years. I swear by him. Um, I love him. Anyway, he gets to directly downwind at 35, 40 yards. He does what most all deer do when you're using them correctly. Is he stops. Kind of looks over in our direction. And you can see that, you know, like always, they know something's there. He's kind of looking around, mm-hmm. trying to feel things out. And, as, you know, I thought, hey, here's our moment of truth. And sure enough, <laughs> you know, a couple seconds of sitting there looking in our direction, he flickers his tail starts walking, goes right on through. I'm like, perfect, okay. That's such so a now, relief when that happens, too. Yeah, at that point, it's like, all right, we just dodged a bullet, we're good. You know, now I needed to make a move, you know, somewhere to get a shot. So he comes down this trail, and I knew at one point, if he pops out of this trail to kind of exit out of the brush and go up into the field, I knew right when he hit that other, that other trail, that was going to be my shot, 25 yards. And so I'm at full draw long before he gets there, and I'm tippy-toeing up and down, out, and rubbing the tree. And later on looking at the camera, it's kind of funny because I was all over trying to just find a hole, and there, and there wasn't. <laughs> and so, and so I, I let him go. I didn't even – I wasn't about to force it. You know, this animal, I, I knew once he got in here, his days were probably numbered with me. Um, so I wasn't going to push it. I wasn't going to take a chance. Um, you know, I really wanted to get him with a bow, of course. But uh, I wasn't going to push it. So we let him walk, and uh, and he went right up into the main bedding, and he was headed in the same direction to all the food sources, the food plots. And I thought, I'd kill him on that food plot tonight. I know I can, but the wind was dead wrong. When I say dead wrong, like dead wrong is in, we can't even get in. You know, and that's what worries me is, is, you know, once I get into a blind or a stand, I'll push the limits anymore because of our scent control and ozonics. I really will. I'm pretty pretty ballsy when it comes to to making a push on a big deer, but we couldn't get in. I mean, there's just no way to even get there, you know. I mean, so, which I've walked with those onyx over my head before, but I just wasn't going to, there wasn't going to push. It's too early. So, the next day, we flip in there. Wind turns around. We flip into that food plot, pull the camera. 
20 yards in front of the blind at like 450. I mean, tons of daylight left. They're just point blank right out in front of, in front of the ground blind. So, you know, now, now, you know, I know he's in my wheelhouse and I'm worried, you know, he's, he didn't have a dough at this point. And I'm worried, you know, man, he's going to get dough here and day. It's getting, you know, it's right. He's, he's moving a lot to find one. Well, that next morning, um, we didn't hunt. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to push it. The wind wasn't right. And I'm big on that. I'll, I'll take my shots. I'll be patient. And I'd rather go blast something than to go force a, a move. And so, you know, we, that next morning we did a little drive around. Sure enough, he's with a dog. Um, you know, so we, uh, we basically held off, um, you know, at that point I knew it was going to get a little tougher cause he'd gotten with a doe. And so, uh, you know, we brought into the food. I thought, you know, at this point, I hope she drags into the food or he breaks loose and, uh, you know, they end up on this food source. So we literally dug in, I mean, dug in, we were leaving all of our equipment, all of our bows. I mean, knowing we took out with batteries and, and so we, we were able to get in and out of this food source, um, Literally with deer in the field getting in, deer in the field getting out, um, you know, multiple days in a row without ever getting any sort of, you know, busted whatsoever. How do you, how do you think you were able to do that? Was it just because you had planned out great access and entry routes already, yeah. or were you doing something different? No, that that was pretty I mean, when I get these big deer, I start making plans for next year, that, you know. And so and so we were lucky enough to have corn on the farm. And, and with corn, you know, these ground blinds, I mean, we can just walk down rows. I'll even go in with a machete. And we'll just trim back maybe one row to give us extra room, and and you can get right up in the back of them blinds, you know. And it's funny because I did a cameraman this year, and I don't think he'd ever experience something like it. But you know, we can get in, we can get out. You know, you wait till it's good and dark. There can be thirty deer in the field, and you know, some of them are only twenty yards. I mean, we can get out, and it's kind of funny because you get away from the blind, you start walking down the trail, and you almost start laughing because you know. You, <laughs> They don't have a clue, you know. It's just so. So I've gotten really good at that. That's a big part of the strategy. I, I, uh, I'm huge on in and out. You know, I feel like if uh, a lot of these big deer, if you can consistently sit on them and not booger it up, they're gonna end up. You know, they're not gonna be there every time, but if you can consistently get in and get out, they're gonna eventually be there. And that's you know, and that was the case with this one. I knew he would come to this food source, so we hunted a couple evenings in a row and no sight of him, no pictures of him. But we were scouting in the morning and, and, you know, and laying eyeballs on it. So I knew he was around. Um, he was just with this doe. Well, the night before we killed him, which would have been November 9th, we were sitting on that food. And sure enough, same as every night, the herd comes to us. Everything's coming out to feed. Little bucks are bumping and chasing. You know, we even had a, like a really good solid 10-pointer on the field. Um, and sure enough, he goes out the back door, and I can see him with his doe going across just a grass hay field. He takes her the whole completely different direction. And, th- and and so the next morning I thought to myself, we got to go over there and I got to check this house. We went over and pulled the camera and he wasn't in the food, food plot that night, you know, so we had, he hadn't been in there since he hooked up with this doe. And uh, we went over, you know, kind of where he, where we seen him. And I thought, you know, I could probably get on this edge and hang a set real quick and wind's right. And, you know, we could roll the dice. And I, and I thought about it, I thought about it, and, you know, I like to gamble. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gambler, and, you know, and so when I play blackjack, if I hit on 15, I hit every every one of them all night long, or I don't hit at all. <laughs> and, so, and so I literally told myself, I thought that in my head, I'm like, stay on the food. Don't chase him. He's going he's gonna to be to the food. Just stick there. This is, you know, if this is the same dough, he's going to be breaking loose any time. So we did. You know, could have went and hung, and we didn't. Thank God we didn't, because that night we went right back in there, got in the blind. And, uh, sure enough, he popped out at, you know, 20 to five, um, had a doe just kind of bumping around. I don't think he was with her. I think he had broke loose from the other one and this was a different deer. 
worked his way out into the plot, you know, good, good light left, um, fed a little bit, actually fed hard. You could tell he hadn't, you know, he'd been out running for a few days, fed hard, and then ended up actually bumping a doe kind of down the fence line and out of sight. And I thought, oh, no, you know, he's got it already. You know, that's the, the worry at this time of the year, you know, when you start getting into, you know, that part of the rut, it doesn't take these big deer very long to get to get back with a doe. And I thought, he's going to push her off down one of these fence lines and he's gone. Sure enough, he got lucky. He come back. Um, you know, at this point, I had a couple 45-yard shots. I told Karen, I said, I'm not going to, you know, I wanted 40 yards or in. I'm not going to push this deer. It's, I just felt too too good. I, I, I felt like we're going to get him killed. And we got lucky, and he, and he got too close. He got to 30. You know, at that point, obviously, you know, put a good hit on him. He barely got out of the, the food plot, didn't even get over the fence back into the cover, and fell dead on camera. So. Wow. That's that's the long of it. That's awesome. It's a it's a, it's yeah. a great it's a great example of of playing it smart on a deer like that, taking advantage of the the data points that you were able to collect, and then you know taking your shots at the right times. We, we talk about that so much, and this is just a a perfect illustration of that. So, how what did yeah. he end up scoring, Gabe? Two twenty six and change. Wow. Yeah. So he grew. I mean, I remember in the in the garage, my buddies were taping him and. And I remember once we they got down with the tape, and one of you know my buddy Scott was adding him up, and I looked at because I was hoping he's going to be in the 90s, you know, before we started adding up fractions. I'm like, please tell me he's mid 90s, low 90s, you know. And and uh, Scott looked at me and he goes, I'm at 214. <laughs> so, uh, so at that point, I knew I was in a really good. He was way bigger than we thought, and, you know. It just it just a tremendous. He put 50 inches on, you know, and you never know what you're going. I knew this year you know, from looking at him, had the juice. I mean, it was obvious that he, he had what it would take to, to blow up, but, um, you know, he just, he put a ton of inches on, uh, drop time, splits, stickers all over his bases. Um, Frame-wise, he wasn't a framey deer. He's 175-inch mainframe 10 with a 17-inch spread, 24-inch beams, but he had 50 inches of trash, you know. So when you start adding up seven, eight, nine-inch splits and eight-inch drop times, those kickers off those and, triple brows on one side and little stickers on his brow. I mean, he just, he just kept adding up. So. Jeez. <laughs> it was, yep. was there anything that you took away from this experience? Any lesson learned or was there something that was just, you know, driven home again for you? Um, I don't know. What was your takeaway from this whole deal? I, you know, I don't know. I've hunted these, I mean, I've been, you know, I, well, there again, I'm fortunate to grow up, you know, I mean, where I hunt is where my, my dad's father homesteaded, you know, I mean, it's, it's, ground that i've grown up my whole life hunting and i i watch these deer and i don't know i feel like when i get my eyeballs on them you know and, and i know and they're in the wrong spot which is on me i, I just anymore I, I you know i feel like i've got the tools and the knowledge that i can lay things out set something up and i can be patient that's another you know and i'm fortunate i'm blessed to have a situation where i don't you know rather than going chasing other deer around or oh i gotta be in the stand night because i got a week to hunt I don't go. I, you know, I'll go blast. I'll try to get some work done in the middle of the day and we'll take our shot. So I'll be real patient and I'll push real hard too. You know, it's just, I guess it's, it's everything, you know, you got every deer's different. Um, you know, like a couple of years ago, I chased around a big one that he was kind of a unique buck because every time we hunted, we seen him, you know, and, and, and that's not very common. You know, you get these five and six year old deer that you're hunting, you know, some of them you're lucky to see them once and that's when you kill them and Others, you, you know, like, like this deer, you, you see them here and there and, you know, and finally you catch up to them. And then there's deer where, you know, like the, the unicorn buckshot a couple years ago. I mean, 
I bet we filmed it 15 times. You know, he was always at 80 or 100, you know. It just, <laughs> yeah. But it was cool. It was cool because we were on it, and he had no idea. And, and, that's, and that's probably what I'll take away from it, I guess. You know, the more I talk, think about it is these big deer, if they don't know you're on their tail and you can consistently stay on them, it's a matter of time. And that's what I try to do. You know, I'm really, really big about scent control on my boots. I'm big on Ozonics. Um, we've used them for years. You know, I'm into huge on setups and scenarios of getting in and getting out, you know, and I think that's the big one. When you can consistently take shots at them and not booger it, you know, eventually you're going to connect. You know, when you when you take that shot, like, you know, when I was younger, I might take that shot and dig in there really hard and get aggressive and blow something up. You know, you know it sets you back so far that, you know, it's, it's hard to recover sometimes from. But you can get in and out, you know, and you're on them and you know what they're doing, you, you know, you're going to connect it sooner or later yeah other than the other than the setup like you had on this food plot you were talking about where you've got the standing corn trimmed out that you can come in and out of do you have any other tricks or, or things that you've done in the past to just help with that in and out because um, this is something that so many people struggle with and it, it's so important though um, anything else you know that you do on that on that front everything i mean and it's funny because i drive around my neighborhood now and you know it's funny how you know it just knowledge kind of grows and you know and people learn and find out and, but I, everything from planting grasses to stacking hay bales to you know i mean i've even put camo netting on the bottoms of lines so we're getting down they can't see us getting you know down the ladders and, and so yeah i use all kinds of things hay bales are i love using hay bales you know if i last minute kind of deal and you know i'll go stack some hay bales up in front of the blind just so that i know i can get out of there and not you know because that's really all it is. I mean, it's, you know, for the most part, these scenarios I've, we set up, you know, if you can get down and 20 or 30 yards down the trail, you're you're done. You're gone, you know. And so that's, that's the big one, just setting stuff up to where you can get out. And it usually doesn't take much, you know. I mean, if you can block visibility, let it get good and dark, you know. In some of these spots, we put food so close to bedding that you can go get in at noon and there's going to be eight or 10 deer on the field. It's just, it's just how it is. It's, you're just, you're in the right, you know, and that's when you know you're in the right spot. When, when you're going in and hunting stuff that, you know, at noon, one, two o'clock in the afternoon, and there's already deer in there, you know, you're doing something right. And that's where even getting in, you got to have, you got to have a visual barrier to be able to slip in and slip out. And, and, you know, and that's, you know, on this deer was everything. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've I've definitely experienced some of the same things, and I've I've got a, a five and a half year old buck that I've been hunting here in Michigan, and it's been uh, similar to that unicorn buck where I'm seeing him almost every time I go in after him. You know, these first couple the first couple weeks of November when I was hunting him hard, I was seeing him all the time, but you know, just out of range, that kind of deal. But I attributed much of that continued, you know, the fact I was still you know seeing him. I attributed a lot to that to the fact that I was able to get in and out carefully without boogering it up. I think that's it's just so important. Um, Absolutely. So before we move on, let's take a quick second to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tom James, a land specialist out of central Indiana. And Tom is going to be telling us about what the very first habitat improvements should be for a land manager. Good question. Um, Some of the first key things, the fundamentals that you want to think about is when you think in terms of what a deer requires, the, the food security cover and water. And uh, the QDMA has a great analogy of the thinking about the lowest hole on the bucket that you need to plug up to keep the water from leaking out. So what could be missing on your property that the surrounding land may have? 
And so you want to do a quick assessment. Maybe it's food, maybe it's water, maybe if you can, uh, maybe it's cover. If you can look through your woods and see 200 yards, then you've got an issue with, with uh, too much shade, not enough sunlight, creating new uh, potential browse and, and cover for your deer. So maybe it's a timber, uh, a timber, either stand improvement or a harvest or a combination of two. That's going to allow some more new growth to come in and thicken up your property. Maybe it's as simple as you not leaving an area alone as a sanctuary. If you're traipsing all over 40 acres and pushing deer off every time you go, then that's, that's obviously an issue. So maybe just an adjustment in the way that you move around and hunt the property and approach things. Uh, if food is your lacking ingredient or your lowest hole in the bucket, then even in timber, it takes some work, but you can certainly clear out some openings and, and plant food. Um, and I would suggest considering both uh, perennial food and annual food, stuff that you can leave in like clover and chicory as a perennial coming back every year and do some fall planted cereal grains and brassicas for the fall time. So you've got a year round program going on. And typically it's not an issue in the Midwest, but if, if water is a lacking ingredient, then maybe you can create a water hole or, or even some of the new systems like the bank's water uh, watering uh, tanks that you can set up that are mobile and fill up and provide water sources for your deer so that they don't have to leave the property to water. Um, again, it's fairly rare, but that could be a consideration. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tom currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash James. That's J-A-M-E-S. So, so I want to transition a little bit now um, because we've been talking about your success there in early November. People have been, you know, looking forward to November all year, and now it's it's came and gone in a flash. It's always shocking to me how fast it, it gets here and then it's, it's done. Um, yeah. So now we're staring December in the face. From your perspective, is the best behind us, or do you like the late season? Do we have some good things still ahead for us here? Yeah, I love late season anymore. I don't like November. I mean, I, I, I know I killed my two biggest deer, but killed, you know, in November. Uh, my, my two archery 200s of both November 10th and 12th. Um, but you, when, when I peel them off the walls, boy, it real quickly goes to late October, late, late November, and later, you know. Um, I struggle a lot in November. And so, you know, when I start getting into that 10th and 12th and I haven't gotten any killed, I almost start, you know, looking towards the 21st and on because I just, we really struggle, you know, with these bigger deer once they start locking down with those. And so, yeah, I love late season. I'm a, you know, I don't farm actively right now, but I've grown up farming, you know, and so, We've got equipment. We're fortunate. We got a lot of food, and so I love late season. Um, you know, I would rather give deer a place to live and hunt them on the edges and hunt them on food. That's you know probably you know one you know you you put that together with entrance and exit, and I think you got it picked at that point. You know, I think you got it made, and so um, you know with with late season coming up, you've got good food sources, good grain. I'm a big grain guy when it gets late. I'd rather have corn and beans. Um, you know, when you get to that late season hunt and you got good food and you can get in and out, it's as deadly as any part of the year, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so if someone, you know, right now it's, it's today's the last day of November. So we're just starting to make that transition into December, into that late season kind of phase of the year. Um, is there anything that should be done or that people should be thinking about or, or even actually physically doing right now to prepare for this late season um or would you say 
you know, just get out and start hunting food? Or I don't know. Is there any kind of transitionary things they should be doing right now to get ready for that best late cold weather and hunts? No, and I would say, you know, if you've got to do something, you're behind the eight ball. I think it all's got to be done ahead of time. You've got to kind of prepare and have your stuff set up. Because at this point, I just lock down everything. I keep everything to a minimum, um, and I really watch my cameras. You know, we'll we'll run a bunch of cameras. You know, they start coming back with the scrapes real hard once the rut winds down. It seems like the signpost kind of, you know, so you can run some cameras back on them scrapes and a lot of food source stuff, a lot of time lapse. You know, I run a lot of time-lapse cameras so I can see the whole food plot before the sun goes down. And so that's what I'm doing, you know. And, and that's the other thing. You know, a lot of these food plots, I may have them set up to where, you know, they are tight to the bedding, you know, which is when you get those deer in there real early. You know, because I've killed a lot of, here in the last few years, I've killed a lot of deer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, five, six, seven year olds And, heck, uh, two years ago, I killed a 9-and-a-half-year-old, and it was like 3.15, you know. So, wow. but that, yeah, but that's kind of getting back into that. You know, the food's where it needs to be. It's close to the bedding. They don't have to move very far to get to it. But then I've also got that, you know, component of if I'm going to put some food here, you know, how can I monitor it? How can I check it? Well, you know, that's kind of like the blind deal. I, I try to set it up to where, you know, as long as I get the right wind, I can get in there, pull some cards, get out midday or, or late morning, you know, and not have any issues. Um, you know, we're big on vehicles, too. You know, we'll, I'd much rather pull in somewhere like a farmer would you know, just in case something is on the food, you know, in the middle of the day, I'd rather pull in there and, you know, sometimes I'll even take the tractor in, you know, just because they're used to it and it doesn't bother them as much, you know, but I'd much rather, you know, take a, a risk with a vehicle or a tractor than, you know, walking up a hill and blowing out a field, you know, on foot. So yeah. a lot of things. <laughs> with the with the trail cameras, you, you were talking about, you know, monitoring these and, and you talked about using vehicles to access it and things like that. Um, how often do you go in to check these cameras? Because that's always something I struggle with is, to your point earlier, you want to keep everything, all your impact as minimal as possible, but at the same time, you need to monitor these somehow so that you can make sure you're hunting at the right time. So how do you balance that? Um, you know, I, if the wind's right and I'm cautious, I'm not going into their bedroom to get these, and so I, I don't worry about that as much. Now, with that said, I'm not checking them every day, but... I don't worry about it too much. I'm really careful with my feet. Um, you know, I'll really take care of my boots, but if the wind's right and I'm not leaving a bunch of boot tracks, which I'm there again, that's kind of one of my, my deals. I really watch my, my foot tracks. Um, it doesn't bother me too much. You know, I'll slip in, slip out. You know, I think, I think deer expect a certain amount of pressure. I think that they can, they, they live with the next amount of pressure. And I think that's a pressure that doesn't bother them. You know, you're not, going into their bedroom you're not bumping them out of bed you're not you know as long as you're not blowing wind right down into a draw or a ditch or a block of woods they're in you know and you're careful that's just your feet i'm big on feet um you know i don't think it, it really hurts me too much you know so you know if i know there's a good one in there and i'm really monitoring i mean i i may check the camera you know like that big one this year we were checking that camera every couple days you know but we we got in got out you know we didn't do it when the wind was on but if we had the right wind, we'd go, we'd flip in, flip out, check it, you know, and make a decision from there. Yeah. Do you do any other scouting of any kind at this time of year? Maybe glassing or, or literally walking around at all? Anything else other than the cameras? Yeah, glass. I'm a big, I'm a big glass. I've got all kinds of places. Most of my farms, you know, they're tough, but, you know, we've got advantage points, um, you know, that we can go park and just glass and sit and watch and, you know, and I like doing that because I can cover a lot more ground. Growing up, my father 
was big. You know, that was one of the things we did. You know, we covered a lot of ground. We had a lot of ground to hunt growing up. Um, you know, and so rather than being stuck or confined to one spot, you know, we could bounce around and cover multiple farms and look at stuff. And, you know, a lot of the deer I kill, I mean, that's kind of where it'll start, you know, a lot of times is I'll, I'll pick them up from glass and or scouting, you know, I'll have their picture, but when you can lay eyeballs on and watch them for 10 minutes, you know, making natural movement, you know, then you can really start to, you know, connect the dots at that point. And so a lot of the deer I shoot, you know, that's a big part of it is, is glassing, scouting from the road, pulling into high points, you know, anywhere you can get away with it. So, so would it be fair to say that you are doing that more often than maybe you're even hunting during the late season? Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. My cameramans love me. <laughs> 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 they, they, they love, you know, cause I'm not the guy that's going to just pound it out for seven straight days. I mean, I may hunt one day in seven, you know, if that's, you know, cause I'm not, I'm not big on blind hunting. I don't like to just go, oh, let's go in here. The wind's right. You know, I like scenarios. I like to know big deer in there. I like to have a game plan. That's what gets me fired up anymore, you know. And so when I can really start, you know, I like going into a set because I've got a whole bunch of data getting me there. I don't like going and just setting all day in a set somewhere to say I'm hunting. You know, I would rather go, go pick them points apart and start putting them together and be really fired up going in somewhere because I know he's either there or close or he's been there, you know? And so, yeah, I, I do t- I tons of scouting. I would, you know, uh, this year we, we weren't hunting mornings much at all because I didn't want to go take the chance. I, I knew I had his, I had his kitchen, you know, I could hunt him in the bedroom, but I knew I had the food. I knew that we could get in and out super, super easy. It was like a dream setup for in and out. And so I just, you know, mornings we, we took a couple shots, seen him once, you know, about killed him that first move I made on him. But, you know, in the mornings, I'd go run around the sections and park and watch and just see if I could put eyeballs on him. And, and we did. You know, we seen him quite a bit. Yeah. So so in the late season then, what what has to be present as far as conditions or data for you to take that shot? Um, like right now, I'm struggling with after that deer, um, I've got – a handful of five-year-olds that didn't grow much. Um, and so I'm really struggling with even, I'm rolling the dice on maybe all of them, but one for letting them go another year to see what happens. Um, but you know, with like that one deer, I'm going to want to, I'm going to, I want to get a beat on where he's at, right. You know, I know where he likes to bed. I know kind of where his home is. Um, but I'll want to, I'll want to get him in on that food plot. I want to see him on camera. I'd like to see him in daylight. You know, whether it's scouting that food plot from a distance or slipping in and pulling a card. Um, but, yeah, I won't, you know, I talked to Adam, my cameraman, just earlier today, and, and he asked me what's going on. I said, absolutely nothing. There won't be. The weather's warm. I said, once it cools off, I said, I'm going to keep watching cameras. I'm going to keep scouting. And once I really get one, you know, once you know one's in there, then, then I'll get after it. But if I don't know there's one in there, I'll leave it alone, you know. And so between cameras or, or glassing, you know, a field, I'll sit back. Um, rather than take a shot and go up in there and, you know, just on a whim and, and, you know, maybe something happens and, and booger it up and, you know, and set yourself back. Mm-hmm. So, so would you not even go in if we got a great set of conditions? So let's say you haven't gotten eyes on them, you know, recently in daylight or something like that, but we just get this mega cold front and snow. Will something like that dream scenario be enough to get you to go in there, even though you don't have the, the, the the sighting or the picture to tell you to go or is it yep. no i gotta have that yeah yeah and that scenario I will. if you get a 
you know, that, that big cold push coming down, big front, cold temperatures, snow, you know, the perfect storm everybody wants and looks for. You bet. I'll roll the dice on those. Average conditions, no. I'll just sit back. I'll wait, you know. I'll, no, I've killed a lot of deer in average conditions because, there again, I went and pulled a card or glassed the field, and, wow, he's in there, you know, 45 minutes before dark. And, and in, you know, the next night get in there on very fair, you know, conditions that are – fair at best you know warm or windy whatever and get them killed but yeah if, if i get that perfect storm of big front moving in cold temps some snow combined yeah then then what i do is if i don't have one really you know a beat on one then i just use my gut of okay i'm pretty sure this is where he's going to be this is where he's always been this is where he likes to be this time of the year and then i'll take my shot you know at that point so weather will get me will get me on a food source even without, you know, getting some sort of data knowing they're in there. Yeah. Do you you pay attention at all to things like like an annual pattern? Like if you saw a certain buck, you know, show up in daylight last year on December 15th and 17th and 18th, would you think about that this year and say, hey, I think it's likely that he might start showing up around the same time frame? Do you pay attention to anything like that? Oh, all of it. Absolutely. The moon, the pressure, recent you know because i've had deer like i said i mean I, like that nine and a half year old like yeah he may have been ten and a half we had pictures of him from either two to nine or from three to ten so Jeez. you know it's kind of a, at that point it's you know it's nine or ten year old but but like that deer you know once we did get him killed and we and, and we we seen him the year before we killed him for the first time but yeah you know once i look back at him i mean his patterns spring and summer and fall and winter were the same for eight years you know and so yeah i I hunt a lot of deer that way where, you know, if they do something one year at a certain time frame, uh, there's a lot of, there's a good chance that, you know, they'll do the same thing in a similar time frame the following year. And, and a lot of that has to do with bedding too. You know, on my farm, we've got, we've got river bottom, you know, which is always early season. That's where they're at. You know, you can about bank on it. And then I've got these, you know, wintering farms or, you know, areas where they just transition, you know? And so, you know, year after year, I've learned that, you know, if there's deer on this bottom, when it when they start looking for that warm spot on the hill, they're going to be right up here, you know. And so, you know, a lot of that weather will, will dictate that. But then also, like you said, you know, four-year-old one year, you know he's up here, you know, feeding, doing whatever. Falling year, it's funny how more often than not, about the same time, they'll do the same thing. Yeah. So another thing that I've personally been trying to, to look at, kind of similar to this, see if I can identify a pattern with this buck that I keep mentioning that I've been trying to figure out, um, I've started to wonder, you know, does he show up in a certain food source or in a certain area with a given wind direction and try to correlate that and so on. So no, okay, when there's a southwest wind, it's probably my best chance is he'll be on the south side of the farm with a southwest wind, but then when I got the northwest wind, then it's most likely he's going to be over here. Do you see common movement with a common wind direction over the years with any of these deer too? I don't. That one I would say no. Um, you know, I, I, that one I've not dug in that deep. Um, sometimes, you know, and this isn't, I mean, I'm not, sometimes I think we give them too much credit. You know, right. yeah. <laughs> I do, you know, I really do. And I mean, I, I sometimes I, I listen to people and kind of their theories and stories and it's like, sometimes you got to remember they're an animal habit, you know, and, and so is there are there some bucks out there that get just so ridiculously smart they don't move unless the winds yeah i'm sure there are but you know i'm fortunate enough there again to be in an area where deer aren't pressured we keep the pressure low i just don't i don't see that you know i mean and i'm not saying it doesn't happen 
but it's it's not something that I've taken note of over the years and thought, you know, wow, this buck's, I mean, with a north wind, he's going to go off this side, and with a south wind, he's going to go off this, you know. Um, I, that's one I, I really haven't dealt with personally. Yeah, I, I think your point about uh, sometimes we take it too far, I think there's something to be said about that. I think you can get... And I'm guilty of this because I'm such a data-driven guy. I want to analyze things so much, but sometimes you can get that paralysis by analysis. I think, um, yeah. and that's you got to walk this fine line between being smart about it and making informed decisions, but at the same time not just going overboard. So that's that's tricky. Absolutely, Absolutely. no, I agree. And it's all calculated. It's just sometimes. Sometimes you can get caught up and give them a little bit too much credit. You know, yeah. I, feel like, I feel like that happens a lot anymore, to be honest with you. I, yeah. I talk to a lot of people. You know, you got to remember, they're a creature habit. They don't reason, you know. I mean, it's, they're going to do things, you know, to survive. And they, they sometimes I think we take it to a level probably a little over board. All right, guys, real quick, this is our final break of the day, but I want to take a second here to tell you about a deal from our friends at Huntera Maps. From now through December 6th, 2017, they've got a special holiday sale offering 20% off any product, any of their maps on there. you got to check it out between now and December 6th. You don't need a promo code or a coupon or anything, but, man, if you are looking for something to put on your own list, this is a great opportunity to nudge your significant other or family member and say, hey, hurry up and get this deal, uh, or if you have somebody on your list that you need to buy for, a Huntera map makes a great gift. Um, I just end up using these so often in my own personal life, whether it's you know standing in my office with my buddies, staring at my maps on the wall and talking through strategy, or you know maybe when I'm in my truck with my buddy Furter at our Ohio property, we got our field map laid out in the console and we're planning out which stands to hunt that day. It's just really nice to have something as high quality and tangible as this. So if you're interested, head over to Huntera.com. That's H-U-N T-E-R-R-A dot com and get 20% off from now through December 6th. So so what about this scenario then? Let's say you've got a, a handful of different types of food sources on your property in the late season. Maybe you maybe you got a, a grain field somewhere. Maybe that's corner beans. And then maybe you've got a green food source. Maybe it's brassicas or something like that. Uh, and who knows what else? Maybe then there's a natural forage area, or maybe there's still some acorns or something along those lines in another section of your farm. I find myself yeah. in this dilemma. I'm going to go into a late season hunt. Conditions seem good, and I'm like, okay, which food source should I focus on? Because so much late season hunting is focused on food. How do you choose the right food? Is there any set of conditions that you say, okay, now I'm going to focus on green, now I'm going to focus on grain, now I'm going to do something different? How do you think about that? Um, that's easy. <laughs> Corn is king. <laughs> that is easy. I, mean, <laughs> I just, I've always lived by quarantine. And here's why. Late season, you know, you, you get your guys that are diehard bean guys, and I always laugh and say, you better hope my corn plot ain't across the fence or across the road from you because I'm going to own them. And, <laughs> and I truly believe that. I just don't, I think beans are great. I think they've got their place. I think they're, they're an awesome food source for a longer time frame, you know. It's like alfalfa. I think alfalfa is probably the, the one I've taken it off my farm and I've put it back on my farm. And I think alfalfa is, you know, if you want to hold deer, it's one of the most important, you know, components. I think beans have an awesome place. But when you get right down to late season hunting and what they really need, it's, it's cars, it's corn. You know, they're going to come to it. You, you know, you've got a food plot that's half corn, half beans. I'm not saying they're going to go all, you know, but that corn's going to own the majority of them. And I think 
with consistency, it's gonna there's gonna be some nights where yeah, they're gonna they're gonna hit you're gonna see deer in the beans a little more in the corn. But I think consistently day in, day out, when you're hunting, you know, in our region where you're snow and cold and there's survival mode, corn's king. Do you do you give any do you have any um oh what am I trying to say? Green food sources like turnips, brassicas, rape, kale, all that kind of stuff. Does that do much for you? Yeah, we use them. Yeah, we use them, and I think there's some, you know, like post-rut, like right now, uh, you know, first gun season for us, early December, I think it's phenomenal, um, you know, because it's the last green. Everything else is done turned, and, you know, if you've got some green and everything else is already turned, yeah, you're, you know, you're you're in the chips. And so, and so that's where, you know, a lot of these different, you know, food sources have their spots, and you know, and I'll hunt them, and I love them, but when you start talking consistently, day in, day out, corn is king. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to beat that. Um, now, how about we're actually out there hunting now? Well, I'm kind of curious about your actual stand setups for the late season. Are you are you are you hunting on tree stands, or are you just doing ground blinds or box blinds? Or if you are in a tree stand, you know, I'd be interested in the details of how you make a tree stand setup work in the late season, given you know some of the challenges with cover and stuff like that too. What's what's your take on that? <laughs> The only time I hunt stands late is if it's the only option, you know, whether it's topography or, or there's a deer somewhere you didn't expect and there's just no way you want to risk putting a blind in there. Um, but that, that there again, you know, I, I feel like I prepare well enough that that really doesn't happen very often. Um, it's been quite a while. But, no, we're typically hunting, you know, some sort of a blind. We're either in a banks, we're in a, you know, a hay bale blind, ground blind, um, but, you know, I'd say my go-tos for the most part are my Banks blinds and hay bale blinds. You know, I live in cattle country. They're used to hay bales. I mean, we get and, – and they're roomy. We like them. You know, they work out really well. Um, once in a while, we'll run a pop-up just quick and easy, you know. But I like my Banks blinds. They're 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 pretty tough to beat when snow's on the ground and it's in the teens for highs. Yeah, a little more comfortable, too. Yeah, yeah, office chairs are nice. <laughs> yeah. my my dad whenever he uses one of my box blinds he always brings his little mr heat mr buddy heater in there too <laughs> you can get real luxurious yeah if i if i'm in the right spot i'll do it I, we do it too you know but if we're we're flirting at the edge we'll hold off on that but if we're in one of our spots it's bulletproof and you know we don't have any worries and yeah we'll fire up the heater yeah yeah now when you're in a blind like that or maybe your hay bale blind um you talked about how much you you use ozonics which i do too um how do you set up your ozonics in that situation uh to to still maintain that uh you know that that stream of, of scent elimination of sorts well i mean we we just mount them you know it's like it's you know, figure out where your wind's at and get them mounted. You know, with blinds, like a hay bale or ground blind, even, a, even you know, like a, a, a tower blind, a banks that's got, you know, like ours have vent holes, you know, if you can inventory or force your your wind through one spot and wash it, and so a lot of times, yeah, we'll leave, a, you know, part of the door on a zipper not, you know, completely shut, or we'll crack a window or in the banks blind we'll put our ozonics right over that vent hole to where, you know, you're really, really doing it. You know, you're, you're washing your scent, so to speak, in the best way possible because you're forcing everything down to a tight little spot and then you're putting that ozonics right on top of it. So, you know, in the, in the bank lines, I'll just walk it. When I get up, get up in there on the platform, I'll just put one up on the roof once I know where the wind's at. Um, a lot of times we'll open a window, mount one to the window, and then shut it 
you know, so that it's blowing. And then same way with like our hay bales, um, you know, I'll just screw the same tree attachment, you know, I'll just screw it right into the wall on the outside once I know where the wind's at and hmm. turn it on turbo. And, and so, so it's just about wherever your wind's going, just, you know, what I've always told people and the, the doubters is it's more of a washing mechanism. It's not, you don't want blowing on you and smelling you. You want wherever your wind's going, you want, you want it going right through that that ozone, you know, and so we just set it up accordingly. Yeah. Do you have a specifically made mount to use with a with a, with a box blind like that, or do you make some something custom? No, I just put it on the roof. Um, and if and if it's and if it's slick or something, you know, then then I improvise. I mean, earlier this year, I took a you know, I always carry tape, you know, in my backpack, and I literally just took a piece of gorilla tape, you know, and rolled it over, stuck it on the bottom, and just. You know, and then, the, and then it just stuck to the top. Now, on the windows, they do make that mount where it'll clip onto the windows, which is, I think it's actually designed for your pull in a pop-up blind. And, you're, you know, in, those, in the pop-ups, they've got that one mount. Um, that same mount will hook right on the, the window bracket of them banks, and they'll just hook right in and hang, hmm. you know. So, and I've even went extreme before and just screwed a hole right into the side of the blind, you know. <laughs> if that's, I, you know, if that's what it takes, and I'm on a big one, then. I'm going to screw a hole in the side of my blind. I'm fine with that. Yeah. So uh, we just find a way to make it work, I guess, is the big one. You yeah. know, it's like, a, it's like a trail camera. It's awesome if you got a, you know, a trail pod or you got some sort of mechanism to, you know, get it all perfect. Uh, you know, there's a lot of times I don't have that. I'm using twigs and sticks and, you know, it just whatever you can get to, to get it where you need it. And that's kind of the same way with the Ozonics. Once yeah. I figure out what my wind is, I just, you know, try to get it up above us and, and downwind. Yeah, do what you got to do. Exactly. Yeah. So, is there is there anything else on the late season front uh, that we haven't talked about? Is there anything you're doing at this time of year or throughout the end of the season um, that has led to success for you that we haven't talked about? No, I mean it's it's, it's basically food and you know evening hunts. Very 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 rarely morning, and I mean I can't even remember the last time. It's been years, you know. But mainly it's you know take your shots. You know, add up all the data, take your shots when you feel good, hunt the weather, you know, don't get busted. I mean, that's, you know, good food. That's And that's the key. You know, and that's tough. I mean, not everybody's got the availability to, you know, get, you know, the, the food needed, you know, on farms. And they're, you know, portion up that I do. And we got tractors and planters. And if I want to plant 10 acres of stand of corn somewhere, I go plant 10, acre, 10 acres of stand of corn. And, you know, at that point, I know it's going to make it through season and then we run the combine through it when it's over so yeah. you know it, it makes it you know so so that's the big one you know basically taking your shots and, and if you don't have food you don't have deer you know around my area so you got to have food you know and, and anymore everybody seems like you know food's becoming more prevalent you know so you want to hold your deer you know if you lose if you run out of food your neighbors are going to be holding your deer you know so you're just trying to you're trying to get them through season with enough food on your farm they ain't looking somewhere else yeah, that's the trick. That is the trick yep. for sure. Absolutely. Well, I guess you know. Here, here's one final thing um, that we hadn't mentioned, which is just getting a shot off in the late season when you're wearing more clothing or it's just colder. Is that something you think about when it comes to whether you're still bow hunting or using a firearm? Is there anything special you think about when it comes to that moment of truth here in the later part of the year as conditions and, and just your what you're actually wearing out there might be different? Yeah, I mean, if I'm bow hunting, absolutely. You know, I'll, uh, I, I'm a big fan of heater body suits. You know, if I'm bow hunting late season, I don't like shooting really bulky. I'm not one of those guys that can do it. 
I don't like to do it, you know. So, yeah, at, at that point, if I'm bow hunting late season, you know, I'd much rather be in a heater body suit with light layers underneath so that, you know, I can I feel normal shooting my bow. Um, you know, that'd be the big one. If I'm gun hunting, nah, not, not worried about it at all. I can be as bulky and heavy as I want to be, and it doesn't affect me. But with the bow, I like to get in that heater body suit and try to keep, you know, my layers to a minimum so I'm not all bound up. Yeah. You know, another thing I, I've always recommended to folks too is, you know, regardless of what you're wearing, when you get up into your tree or blind or wherever you're at, make sure you, you just test it out. So make sure you draw back and feel how it's going to feel and make sure nothing's bunching up, you know, unexpectedly that, that, you know, if you hadn't practiced through that routine wearing your late season gear, you wouldn't have noticed that, oh man, I got all this huge bunch up on my left arm that maybe would mess up with the with your cables or something. So it's good just to practice, make sure that's happening. Um, okay. And yeah, then, absolutely. and then I don't even, I don't know if this is something you ever do, but I find myself on those really cold days that if you sit, if you're sitting there for three, four hours in the evening, maybe, and it's seven degrees or 10 degrees or something, you kind of stiffen up a little bit. So if you, if you find yourself where there's for sure no deer in sight and, and of course, that's not always a given. But if you can find yourself a little second where you can pr- just draw that bow back just to warm yourself up and stretch those muscles out, sometimes that's a good thing to do, too. Yeah, I've even climbed up and down the stand once. <laughs> 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 because, I was beyond, because I was beyond the point of worried about my bow. I was you know, I was in freeze mode, you know. So I've even, yeah, you know, if you look around and you feel comfortable and it's early, I've even climbed down the tree and back. I mean, that'll get you warmed up in a hurry. So especially yeah. when you're in a 25 or 30 foot tree stand like most mine are you you go down and up once you're usually warmed up for a while yeah and and taking that little risk of going up and down that's that's better than having to leave completely right and and completely giving up yeah i'd rather yeah i'd rather do that and sit there and like you said stove up and make a bad shot or you know not be able to get your bow back or you know whatever but yeah i'd rather i'd rather take that chance and be able to sit there for another hour and to you know not be able to get my bow anchored back right or be stoved up and leave type of deal so yeah for sure well uh gabe i'm gonna try to take some of uh, the things we've been talking about today and put them into action actually right now i'm gonna i'm down in ohio for the last couple days of their firearm season so i'm gonna wrap this up and try to kill a, a very late november buck but uh for anyone out there who's heard this conversation and wants to get in touch with you about uh, about land or anything else, you know, where can they learn more about what you've got going on or, or possibly get in touch with you? Well, they can obviously give me a call. I mean, our website, you know, whitesupproperties.com is going to have about everything you could ask for, uh, contact territories, you know, regions, states, all that, you know, is going to be on there for information. Um, but email, text, phone call, if somebody specifically wants to talk to me about something in my area in Iowa, you know, I'm, I keep an eye on all those. And, and so phone call, text, or email can get a hold of me. Awesome. Well, Gabe, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this with us. And uh, and thank you so much, and good luck through the rest of the season. Yep, no, I appreciate it. Good luck to you, and hopefully, uh, hopefully your Ohio works out for you. I got my fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> right on. And that will do it for us today. Thank you guys for tuning into this one. couple quick things before we go. Uh, first off, I just want to thank everyone who's left a rating or review for us on iTunes. We have more than a 1,000 
five-star reviews. That's crazy. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely one of the highest-rated hunting podcasts out there, and it's all because of you guys, so big, big thank you. If you haven't left a rating or review yet, uh, and if you'd like to, you just need to head over to iTunes on your phone or computer, and uh, you know, it just takes a couple quick seconds to leave a few thoughts or just click the stars. Um, we appreciate that. Uh, also, we want to give a big thank you to our partners who help make all this possible, so big thanks to Sitka Gear. Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you again to everyone out there listening, taking time out of your day to spend with us. Uh, man, that means a lot. We appreciate it. So if you're still hunting, which, which I hope you are, I'm wishing you all the luck in the world. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.